England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. Welcome, folks, to Man Cave Movie Review, episode 22. Today we're going to be talking about a great naval action movie called Master and Commander, starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. Uh, it's directed by Peter Weir. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me in this fantastic review is my good and dear friend, Jeff, nobody likes a Jonah, Muncie. Hi, Steve. Good evening, and thank you for having me on this stellar, fine podcast. I got you on that one, didn't I? Yeah, you sure did. Stunned. Stunned and dazed. I think I stole somebody's uh, thunder on that one. Better all, you got to always have a backup plan. All right, and also joining us is my other good and dear friend, Mark. Hey, y'all, watch me try and shoot this albatross with a musket slover. Gentlemen, a toast to our wives and sweethearts. May they never meet. Nice. Very well done. And welcoming back our other very good and dear friend, Ken, you just shot me, Roni. Well, I thought this movie did a really good job of highlighting the true traditions of the Royal Navy at the age of sail. And of course, by traditions, I mean rum, sodomy, and the lash. I must have got the edited edition that didn't show the sodomy. Yeah, I missed the sodomy part. <laughs> Ken, are you sure... Are you sure it wasn't Whip Master and Commander that you watched? <laughs> well, Maybe. You know, you I, click you, you click on the movies on streaming, you don't know what comes through. You know, the part where they said bring out the gimp, that was the part you should have done. It was not the right movie. Oh well. Anyway, folks, for <clears throat> for those of you who have not seen this movie, it is it is a great one. A lot of people are not very big into naval movies. Uh, I know that is the fact with a few people I've tried to recommend this movie to, and they're just like, I don't like Navy movies. And I don't know why. I think it, I, I think they're pretty cool. Uh, this one in particular is spectacular. And I'll just give you the quick storyline on it. It was um, It's in April 1805 during Napoleonic Wars, the... HMS, which stood for Her Majesty's ship. His, His Majesty, His, His Majesty, his, the King. Okay, His, His, His. All right, my bad. I stand corrected as usual. Uh, it's the HMS Surprise. Um, a British frigate is under the command of Captain Jack Aubrey, and his current orders are to track and capture and destroy a French privateer named the Akron. And uh, the task will be a difficult one, as Aubrey learns after the initial battle that the Akron is a bigger and faster ship than his, which puts him at a disadvantage. And his single-mindedness and seemingly impossible pursuit puts him at odds with uh, the surprises doctor and naturalist and his friend, uh, Stephen Maturin. You saw some great cinematography, and we'll talk about that just with the, with the saving, but you saw personal struggles of of the captain uh, being Jack Aubrey, just with uh, commanding his crew, having that mindset of, you know, he's trying to do his duty, whereas his, you know, his best friend, uh, who is also the doctor, is a little bit more of the, you know, warm and fuzzy guy who, you know, just wants to, you know, look at birds and lizards and 
bugs and stuff like that really isn't into the whole uh, kill the French thing. So there's kind of a neat dynamic there. And there's a lot of things that I do want to talk about in this movie, particularly the, you know, the personalities that are involved. And I, I do want, Mark definitely is going to be uh, uh, giving us a lot of uh, technical and historic points in this being the um, historian that he is. So anyway, big fan of this movie, really liked it. Uh, like I said, Russell Crowe, he plays uh, Maximus, Captain Maximus. No, I'm kidding. Captain Jack Aubrey. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, oh, I do want to say that uh, one of the reasons that we're doing this show is that one of our, uh, actually our most devoted and um, dedicated listener, Annie, uh, this one's actually for you because you did tell me how big of a fan you are of Russell Crowe. And, uh, you know, got posters of him all over, all over the room. I think you're trying to find the action figure. <laughs> She's, yeah, <laughs> I'm in trouble. No, actually, she can't stand him. <laughs> so anyway, like I said, Russell Crowe plays a fantastic role in this. I, I really thought he was um, really kind of stole the show. Uh, anyway, those are my initial thoughts. want to kick it over to um, Jonah, I mean uh, Je- uh, Jeff, and uh, see what he has to say. <laughs> hey, thanks, Steve. Sure. Um, I really enjoy this movie. I it's tough to tell a story with basically one setting, and that one setting is this ship, and that's what you have the entire movie is the ship and a bunch of water. Uh, whether that water is you know calm or whether it's you know buckets of water being thrown around on top of the ship, it's tough to, to watch a movie in in one setting the whole time. Yeah, there there are you know there are times that they they, they take leave of the ship, but the the great camera work um, and the, the different scenes that they construct I think are very well done. What, the the links that they went to to create this movie um, we talked off off camera here off mic about you know, there were two separate ships that were built for this so they could actually film this ship you know doing what it does. One was a replica, and one was a, a you know, I guess, one that you know they could have used at any time given a, given a moment's notice. Um, the CGI work, I think, for the scenes that they could not do on a ship, um, I some of the best I think you could see. Um, it was tough to tell that it was not. It, if you tried, you could figure it out, but it was not so transparent that um, it looked like it was green screen or CGI or whatever. Um, you really have to pay attention and really want to try to find it, I think, especially in some of the destruction scenes um, between the ships. But I think that the story, even though it was adapted from a uh, from the War of 1812 between the uh, the uh, between America and Britain, it was adapted to be the the battle between um, England and France. Um, and I thought it was a good ad- adaptation to that. And um, the the cast in this, it almost seems like they pulled them out of the. 1800s. Um, they all do, I think, a spectacular job of portraying, you know, rough, seaworthy um, people, and I think they did a they they did a spot on job of nailing life on a boat during this period of time. I thought it was really I I, I like this show a lot, and I think they do a lot of good things. Um, no, I think you're right, Jeff. I I think that is one thing that really did capture is how uh, how they did show what it was like. To live on a ship like this, and uh, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure Mark probably has, but I know when I was in Baltimore, I went on the, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was a frigate, 
in Constellation. It might have been that one. It's been quite a few years. And uh, I, I, on the other hand, could not have been in the uh, uh, in the Navy back then because um, I, I would have either killed myself by a severe concussion of walking into the uh, you know the beams on the you know over there. Otherwise, I would have basically crawled everywhere because there's no flipping way I could have I could have managed. Um, yeah, and I could have I could have skipped through that ship yeah, at any point, and never. I mean, I would have probably had to have been on my tiptoes to reach any of the you know the upper decks above me. I mean, it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm fine, and that's the benefit of being vertically challenged, Steve. <laughs> okay, Mark, your thoughts? This movie is based off of the terrific series written by Patrick O'Brien. There were about 21 books in the Aubrey Matterin series. I've got a number of them. I've read five or six of them. Uh, I think they do a very good job of translating the feeling of the O'Brien novels. They combine a number of the novels. Master and Commander and Far Side of the World are two separate books, and they, they take elements from other books. But, and I think it, it does a very good job of displaying, as Jeff mentioned, life aboard a man of war. I mean, that science and that art that you watch on, on the screen is really lost. I mean, th- that type of ability to build, navigate, sail, command a vessel of that intricacy, when you think about it, it is, it is an intricate creation, it is impressive. And I think they do a wonderful job of showing the distinctions and the hierarchy of command and the importance of command. You know, when they say master and commander, they mean it. You think about it. Captain Aubrey is England. Wherever he appears, he represents the king. Um, and, and that kind of responsibility, there's no cell phones, there's no satellites, there's none of that. This man, his actions will affect the outcome of the empire in some way, shape, or form and will not be known about for months. And I think they do a very good job of showing that interaction and that the the issues of command. And I think that to the to the issue of the ship, really the ship is a character in this movie. In some ways, it is the star. It, it, it's just a it's just a great thing to watch how they how they develop the ship as a character throughout the movie as well. Um, I think it gives a great feeling for the period. I think the actors, whether they are stars or characters, minor characters on the sides all portray their roles accurately, and uh, everybody seemed to really want to do this right, from the director all the way down to the lowliest tar on the deck. I was really impressed. It, and it also, the other thing I really like about this movie is it's not rushed. It takes its time. It enjoys developing the characters and telling their backstory and showing you that they really do care about each other and a comrade type environment and there is only one woman that you see in this movie so if you're if you're looking for a bodice ripper where Kira Knightley appears as Jack's love interest um, to wave him goodbye at the dock that's not in this movie this is a guy's guy movie I think we need and to, it's very well done and I think we need to talk about that uh, the fact that there was a, a dearth of of female roles in this I think uh I don't know, Jeff. Was that was that a problem for you, or was that a plus for you that they didn't, you know, like have a uh, a poor call in um, the Philippines, in the Philippines somewhere, and you know maybe you had a uh, you know a bodice ripping Tony Katane? Jeff just disappeared. He's off screen. Is he off screen? Oh, uh, see, I wasted my best one, and he's not even here. No, 
Wow. Ken, what do you think? Really like this movie when it came out. It did a very good job, like Mark and Jeff said, of showing the ship, showing the people, creating the whole atmosphere. It's a cramped, crowded atmosphere. I thought they did a really nice job of bringing all the little characters to life. Uh, you know, it is about uh, Aubrey and Maturin and their relationship. That's the key in the books. And it's the key in the movie. Most of the real dialogue going back and forth is between the two of them. But they do a good job of giving all the different characters their little moments of glory. Everything from, you know, the 13-year-old midshipman to the, you know, crusty old sailing master. They all have their parts to play, and they all get a chance to step up and build their characters a little bit. I mean, you Aubrey has to be dealing with all these people. This is like a, a finely run machine. I mean, you have all these people, all these parts that have to fit together with their own problems and powers and quirks. And, you know, you get a chance of uh, to see what makes these different characters tick. And I like that because it brought it to life. Again, there's a true dearth of... Movies set in the age of sail, I mean, aside from the old Horatio Hornblower movies back in the 50s, I can't think of very many others. And I was very happy when I heard this was coming out, and I was very satisfied by it when I got the chance to see it. You know, one thing that uh, uh, he made a comment about was like the midshipmen. And I always thought that was kind of fascinating, Mark, is that the midshipmen in here, maybe they, I don't know, were they really that young? Midshipmen would go to would go to sea 10, 12 years old. Yeah, they were pretty young. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I remember what you said, you know, the powder monkeys. They were a lot, you know, there was a couple of them. You saw the small ones, and you're just like, man, they must have just been, they must have been scrounging up the orphanages to get some of these, you know, because, you know, what parents going to let their kid go off and do that? But, again, different time, different time right. mindset. But well, and you mentioned the midshipmen. Um, there were a couple other actors that I've seen in other role one is um midshipman lord william blakeney he's the mm -hmm. young towhead who loses his arm um max Pircus, he played in uh, rome as young augustus i think right Ken? yes yes and then a very um, good job Bill, in that role. yeah and then billy boyd who was the coxman who uh, was always at the helm was pippin yep. in uh, return of the king and lord of the rings and all the whole trilogy so yeah. It was kind of nice to see some of those actors that you've seen in other historical or fantasy movies uh, in this. But you're right. There, other than um, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe, I had seen some of these other guys in minor roles or character roles, but I really no no jump out big names. Right beyond those two. Well, I got to say this was a good year for Billy Boyd because he was in both this and Return of the King. And they were both up for the Oscars and all. And he was, you know, it's, it's always good to be in two big-budget Oscar-nominated uh, movies. And unfortunately, that's the other problem for this movie. It was up against Return of the King. Or it, probably because it was nominated for everything. But other than Best Cinematography and Best Sound Editing, which Return of the King wasn't up for, and it won, Return of the King mopped the floor as was anticipated um, for the Oscars, or I think it would have picked up some other awards. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I, I kind of want to talk about a little bit is um, 
uh, some of the technical detail in this, and I thought it was pretty pretty well done. I don't know. They they talked about there were um, uh, gosh, they had uh, miniature mock-ups for the movie. I really couldn't tell. I couldn't tell what was mocked up and what was what was the real thing. I mean, it all looked completely real to me. Unlike a lot of movies where you know the CGI and all sort of stands out, or you get the feel that the whole thing is CGI. I never got the feeling at watching this movie that it wasn't real. It was very authentic. I, I never felt a jump, like Ken said, between with the HMS Rose, which stood in for the HMS Surprise, versus special effects. It was very well done, and I thought that they they used enough of it without. Again, we didn't go down the road of George Lucas and have fire when we had. You know, we didn't overdo special effects. You didn't see shells hitting sides of ships and causing massive explosions right. and bodies flying through the air and, you know, fire. No flaming arrows. No flaming arrow scenes. Thank you. No no flaming artillery or cannon shells. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that was one of the things that really could have helped this movie was just them using Greek fire. That would have been awesome. <laughs> Of course. Well, you know, I mean, it's a legitimate, not, not to get all geeky and Napoleonic naval tactical on everybody, but they oh, did please. use hot shot. Hot shot. Right. It's pretty cool to watch. I mean, you heat up a cannonball in an oven until it's red hot and then load it up. That'd be pretty impressive to watch, but they didn't use it. I didn't even think they used chain shot. They didn't use any of the fancy schmancy stuff they had. They just loaded up cannonballs and went at each other. Well, but keep in mind, they, there wasn't too much exchange of fire because you know, we were introduced really right off the bat. Um, you know, the movie, I think, does a I, – I love how this movie enters in regards to the initial scene sets up where, you know, you're, you're introduced to some of the crew and they're on their, their, their hourly watch. And in the mist, you know, they, they believe they see the faint – back end of a ship and it's just there for a second because they're seeing it through fog and the tension and you know well, the thing i loved about it, it how quiet they had the scene yes where and you may have you may hear some some rippling of waves but really it was very tense it was you know it was a very foggy day uh and the way that they introduced that and then they had you know they, they sound the uh call to uh, call to um um, beat to quarters. It? Beat to quarters. That's what it's called. Quarters, and uh, you know, and, and you're introduced to Russell Crowe's character, and initially, you know, I, you know, he, he's even, you know, he's skeptical of what he's seeing because there, the, he is charged with finding a certain ship and sinking it because they know that that ship is out here to cause problems um, to their whaling fleet, and his orders are to find it, either sink it or take it as prize, and that that's what he's charged to do but immediately he finds that he is in for a serious encounter and there is not much of an exchange and matter of fact th their ship the surprise doesn't really get close enough to really do anything it to gets the, surprised uh, to the yeah, act it, it does it gets surprised because it, it basically it finds out that it's way outclassed and so basically the it's the it's the hunter becomes the hunted and Aside from that, you 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 only get the you know the climactic battle at the end, and there's not much firing there either. 
but what there is when they rake the stern, yeah, <laughs> and they cross that, they cross the Asheron's T, and they just unload. That is just such a well done scene of showing what happens when when the exposed stern of a ship gets gets a broadside, where they you just watch those shells go from stem to stern. Yeah, well, it's, just it's, upset gun carriages and bodies. Yeah, because you're firing into the flank. It's like firing right. into the flank of a regiment. Yeah. Or, or firing into the back of a tank. I mean, the weakest spot in a tank is underneath and in the rear. And they're, they're built to take it from the front and from the sides. The same thing with these ships, which is interesting that they, you know, the, the ship was, according to the, the movie, was actually an American-designed-built ship, which I guess was built based on the USS Constitution. And... Um, you know, this ship was, you know, I think they said, you know, its hull was what, two feet? Yeah, it was based yeah, off the, based off I mean, that, the, um, that is, that is a thick ship. They realized that, I mean, and you see it. I thought they did a great job where you're seeing through the gun ports and you're watching your 12 pounders bounce off, you know, the, the Akron. And you know, they're like, we, we can't even, we can't even damage it from this distance. And so, you know, they, they realize, well, you know what, they, 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 they can stand here and duke it out, but they're going to lose. Well, I'll say this in their defense, and that is nothing about the movie, but this is just like riffing a little bit on that period. And that is, the Acheron is supposed to be a privateer. And privateers, almost by definition, are converted merchantmen. The Acheron's a warship. I mean, it's a big, honking, built-to-fight ship. It's not a privateer. It's a, it's a French warship. I don't know why in the movie they're sitting there saying it's a privateer. It's, it can't be. Pri- you know, private citizens didn't go running around in frigates. I mean, sorry. The Acheron wasn't really a frigate. It was almost like a ship of the line, wasn't it? It was a four, it was a 44-gun frigate, which is the Americans basically built pocket battleships. Okay. And in the book, and, you know, obviously you want to sell tickets in America, so they changed it from an American-built Warship, War of 1812, if you read the book, it's American versus Brit. You know, we want to sell tickets and make a movie that Americans will see, so we'll make it the French bought an American-built warship and turned it into a privateer right. and move the timeline up to 1805 versus 1812. Oh, yeah, it was a minor pet peeve of mine. I was okay. It yeah. didn't bother me at all in a movie, but when you start talking about it, it started it just popped in my mind. We're like, eh. It is a little hokey, but you got to have a worthy. I mean, if this was just a converted merchantman, the surprise would have crushed them in the first engagement, and then ten minutes later, the movie would be over. So that would be very dull. When you strip this movie down, really, what it is, it's a chase movie. Yeah, yeah. Pure and simple, it's a chase movie. You know, it's the hunter versus the hunted, back and forth. Uh, that's what this movie is all about. It's a psychological drama. And it's a snapshot of life on board a warship, but as an adventure, it's a chase flick. And it's very well done. Yeah, it is. And one thing I did like uh, was, I mean, you saw basically Russell Crowe is, uh, again, or I'm I'm just going to refer to him as, as Aubrey, as Captain Jack Aubrey. And you get the sense early on that Aubrey is a pretty competent captain. But you also get the sense early on that he is not infallible. And you saw that, I think, the second time. Uh, it was in that second point after they had uh, escaped from the, the first uh, shellacking that they got. 
patched up the ship, and then uh, the next thing you know, it was like, boom, the Acheron's behind him again. And, and you saw how frustrated he was. He's like, you know, this is the second time you've done this to me. There will not be a third. And their whole thing was trying to get away. And then he came up with that little, uh, you know, that little diversion tactic that he used to, uh, you know, to lure the Acheron off while he slipped away in the night. So I thought that was really good. I mean, you saw, you saw that he wasn't a perfect captain, but he was also able to uh, adapt and get himself out of bad situations, which I thought was kind of nice because too many times, you know, the star of the movies have this tendency to be these uh, almost like James Bond. There's nothing you can do do to me. And, and you saw that with him and you saw a lot of his, you know, foibles with, you know, with Paul Bettany, who is, uh, who is the surgeon, Stephen. And I thought that was, I thought the exchange between those two was really good because it wasn't just the, the drama between those two, but you got a, it really, I think, developed Aubrey's character very well. You saw what kind of person he is. And I've got some pretty interesting sound clips uh, that will, that will play later on that really kind of gives you a pretty solid idea of what, Aubrey's views were, and it was all about duty, and it was all about I know what my orders are, and I'm going to fulfill them no matter what the cost. Whereas Paul Bettany, who was Stephen, his, his friend, was just kind of like, well, you know, that's that's not really what I signed up for, but you know, he's getting kind of dragged along, and you could see at some points that there's some major conflict between the two. Well, I thought it was interesting, and it's very well developed if you catch it. The only person that the captain can be. Jack Aubrey and not Captain Jack Aubrey, not Captain Aubrey, is with the civilian, his friend Matterin. He cannot be anything but that. He can't act that way towards his sailing master. He can't act that way towards his first officer. So when they sit and play music together or they talk, when they are in private in the captain's quarters, it's the one time he can let his hair down, so to speak. And also... I think it's very well developed. Um, Matterin never publicly, we don't have any one of those scenes that you typically see in these types of movies where the buddy in the buddy flick calls the other buddy out in front of everybody. Right. The, the period understanding of duty and command is very well displayed. And even Matterin knows when he's on deck that Jack Aubrey is God almighty on this ship. And if he has a question or he has an issue he quietly raises it when no one else is around. Mm-hmm. He will never undermine his friend or the captain's authority. And I think that's very well done in this movie. I want to talk a little bit about the actors in this. Any particular favorite characters? Gentlemen? Well, I'm going to say I like the midshipmen. Again, they, they, I thought he did a great job in Rome playing Octavian. He did a good job here. Uh, this It'd be real easy to have the midshipmen be sort of non-entities in a movie like this. I mean, essentially, they're adolescent kids. I mean, they could be shoved to the background, but that's not really how it worked. I mean, in this period, these guys were junior officers. They were held to high responsibility. They were expected to perform. And I thought his character did a good job all the way through, as opposed to his compatriot that jumped overboard with a cannonball. But that's... A sad story. <laughs> that ends badly. You know, and I love there's a little scene, if you, if you don't catch it, where he's telling the crew to tie 
tie a black ribbon on their right shoulder, on their right arm. <laughs> and the one big burly guy goes, is that the one you lost or is that the one you've got? <laughs> and he points at him and goes, I don't need cheek from you. And everybody laughs, but they accept this little kid's role as an officer because as far as they're concerned, he's earned their respect. And it's really well done. Yeah, because he said that's not funny or that's inappropriate yeah. or something like that. It's not like he got all huffy. No, because and you know what's funny, Mark? When you started saying that, I don't know how many flipping times I've watched that movie until I watched it for this podcast that I picked that up. I've missed that all throughout there, and that's what he made a comment. He's like, "Yo, tie it on your left arm." He goes, "Oh, you mean the one that you don't have anymore?" And that's what he goes. That or, no, he said, "He goes, that's not funny." <laughs> and he just like pointed his finger at him like he was reprimanding him. I just thought that was so cool. And what was great is the other characters were every, and the, the big guy kind of chuckled like, "Yes, sir, you're right." And everybody chuckled, but no one disrespected right. the midshipman. He right. earned their respect. He lost an arm in the action, and he's standing there, and he's gonna he's gonna be right in the thick of it. And as far as they're concerned, he's one of them. And I thought that was really well done. And I think you're right, Ken. The midshipmen are fun to watch. Yeah, and and really, you know what? That reminds me of a point. And this is one thing I do like about Russell Crowe. You know, I know the guy's kind of a douche. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, from stuff that you read about. But, you know, I have to give it. The guy is a really good actor. And I will tell you, one there, there's two there's two scenes where you could see how he kind of got into the role. And one of them was, it was after the action, they had, you know, saw the poor kid's arm off. And it was like, you know, next day or whatever, he's, he's recovering. And Aubrey goes down to visit the, you know, to visit the wounded. And he goes up to Mr. Blankley, and he's, uh, you know, asked him how he was doing. He goes, fine, and that. And he goes, well, here, I, I understand you like to read. And he gave him a book on um, on Nelson. And Blankley's like, oh, thank you very much. And did you serve with him, or what was he like? And he says, you just kind of need to read the book. And the one scene where they showed him, like, flipping through the pages, you could see Aubrey. It was just the way he looked at the kid. And he almost thought he was going to start crying. Because he's like, there's this little kid who just had, you know, he had to have his arm taken off, you know, because of, you know, this action. And I thought it was really neat when he let, you know, and he says, you just need to read the book. And then he walks away and the kid turns around and he opens up the book and on the on the cover is Nelson. And Nelson had lost an arm. So I thought that was a really nice touch. And I thought it really showed uh, the kind of guy that Aubrey was, is he wasn't that he was not disconnected from the men. You know, he was right there with them. Not only is he is his depth of acting, but the effort that he puts into preparing for his role. And I think that that's, that's why he is a great actor is he takes the time. He learned how to play the violin for this movie. He wasn't trained through school. It was part of the role. And so before the movie, he learned how to play the violin. I don't know if any of you gentlemen have uh, picked up the instrument. I surely haven't. It is but one of the hardest things to learn to play. I can appreciate that it is one of the hardest things to play. So Russell Crowe wanted to be able to play this on the screen. And so he was taught how to do it. And he t- took that time. And it had to take a lot of patience because I know kids in school spend years you know, learning how to do this instrument. So he had to do it and play it fairly well, which I think he does in the movie. 
for you know o- over the few months before the shooting starts. Right. Uh, but I think that's an example of how much care he takes into his profession. Mark likes to say that you know you have actors and you have stars. I think Russell Crowe is is a star because of his quality of acting. That because of how serious he takes his trade, that that's why. Because you you get that he is not mailing in any of these roles. Uh, you know, personally, yeah, he you know he might be a jackass, but he could also be somebody that we might want to go out and have a beer with, because he could be our jackass. I don't know. Right. If you were Russell, I mean, if if any of us, you know, were in this man's situation of being basically, th- I mean, because he really came out of nowhere, I think, as you guys have all pointed out, you know, he, the the movie that you guys really enjoy him in, L.A. Confidential, L.A. L.A. Confidential, you know, he he really just kind of landed and and he hit the ground running and took off from there, you know, if if you're thrust into that limelight and you know how the crazy paparazzi is, I'm sure at some point. I would take a swing at a cameraman, too. Or, you know what, if I'm in a bar and somebody's like, yo, you really suck, I may take a swing at that person, too. All we hear about is Russell Crowe is a jack wagon. Well, but why? You know what? I mean, we, you know, we've heard the, the audio of uh, Christian Bale um, in, the, in, the, <laughs> you know, in the preparation for the last Batman movie. Right. I'm sure we all have our breaking points. And I've had mine. I've seen Mark have his. And um, Ken never has one of those moments. He is the most cool, collected guy I know. And I am terrified if Steve ever has one of those moments. I've um, seen it. I've seen it uh, at Gettysburg when he couldn't <laughs> buy a hearty hat. Oh, I, I saw 225 pounds of man mountain striding towards us. And we're all going, I don't know why he's pissed, but we're dead. I was mildly irritated. I was. You were I didn't break anything. I didn't hit anybody. I was mildly irritated at the fact that I go all the way to Gettysburg to get a Hardy hat from the man who is the genius of Hardy hats and find out that he's only got Hardy hats for pinheads. I mean, it was like, hey, I, seriously, it's like, you know, you can put this flipping hat on a bobble doll. You don't have anything that could fit mine. It's not like I've got this gargantuan cranium. Your Honor, I rest my case. was that 10 years ago i'm still pissed off (laughs) yes you are i'll never forget you come storming up all holy crap (laughs) here son of a bitch didn't have a party hat okay okay i've never seen that and heaven help me if i ever do but you know, I I don't fault the man for his anger. Of course, he could just be an angry man. Jeff, you've got a good point because you know you hear that about some of these guys, and I think you I think we we look at actors that they're supposed to be these just cool, calm, collected people. And like I said, I mean, I've heard some of the stories. I I like Russell Crowe. I mean, I'll I see do. anything he's in, and I hear some of those stories, and I'm, and maybe I get jaded. But then again, I think about yeah. I've, I've kind of gone off the deep end at times. If I've had been having a bad day and, you know, somebody kind of looks at me crosswise, I've had a tendency to kind of uh, flip out a little bit, not necessarily throw a phone at somebody, but just that's just because a phone wasn't available at the time. Um, <laughs> have, you, have, you ever, have you ever demolished a remote control to a TV or smashed a computer with your fist, Steve? I have, I have destroyed a remote control, yes. 
Okay, I'm just Actually, curious. during during uh, one of the uh, Colts games, I almost threw my shoe at the TV. Yeah, <laughs> almost. I almost. I believe, Jeff, I almost watched you rip apart your car when you are at Gen Con because you couldn't find your pass. I thought, he's going <laughs> to rip the freaking car apart. Oh, my God. I forgot. Forgot about, about that. that, didn't you? Oops, yeah. Oops. I, I forget. I guess we're oh, not all right. of Ken's a mean professor. I almost drove off and left him. He scared me. <laughs> you know, even us little men in our 5'7 stature, by the way, world average, okay, 5'7, average height. You know, we, we uh, you know, in Bangladesh, we are giants. <laughs> I went to that pygmy village, all right, and they worship me as a god. All right, it's like Jane Town. Yes, <laughs> because the sunlight reflected off your head, and then it blinded right. them. And they figured you were God, so that's why. You know, I was able to direct energy and power one of their, you know, mini generators with the shine off of my head. So, Jeff, a man called Jeff. Jeff. That was oh. a great firefly episode. Oh my! It was an uh, episode you never expected. You're like, what? There's a statue to Jane? Yeah, it. <laughs> Yep. Genius. Mutter's milk, but we digress. We how did not. How did that not get picked up for a second season? No, we're okay, real quick. I got another character I really enjoy in this movie, and he, he's in the background. I think I know who it is. And he's always muttering. Yep. It's preserved. Oh, you Killick, mean, the captain you mean, steward. I love Killick. Do you Killick. mean Captain Ahab? Yes. Oh, I love that guy. He's I, great. You know, when my hair gets white like that, boy, I am growing those chops out, okay? That beard, I mean, you know, I'm shaving the yep. mustache off and leaving the beard. You know, I, and that was the whole thing because and it wasn't that he was muttering. He was just always bitching about something. He didn't bitch at Aubrey, but he just kind of like muttered under his breath. Like the one point when he said he, when uh, when those two guys came in and with the with the model of the Akron and, uh, and he said, kill it. Extra ration of rum for these men, and they're in the and the two guys are like, oh, thank you, sir, thank you, sir. Killick's like, and I was saving that for saluting day. We'll drink wine. Oh, sure, we'll drink wine. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it under his breath as he's walking out, like, screw you. <laughs> he did have a metal plate in his head. Okay, that no, was no, not no. him. That that was not him. No. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the one who had hold fast tattooed on his. Hand. Yes, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about him. Real quick, there is there is one thing that I do want to talk about, and this is my beef with the movie. And I know why they need to do stuff. And I, I talked with Jeff about this a little bit uh, pre-show uh, before I left uh, the People's Republic of Massachusetts. Did have some fantastic chowda, 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 and and a lot of Sam Adams. Oh, Jeff, did I tell you when I went on the uh, when Annie was kind enough to take me on a tour of Boston. And I just want to say, now I know what it's like to be a co-pilot for a kamikaze driver. I was going to say, do you know, you know what it's like to be in a pod racing? Yeah, exp- yeah, yeah. Race, right? Yes. Yeah. I yes, you were, you were Anakin, apparently. No, I was. God Almighty! <laughs> Welcome to Death Race 2000. It, that's what I told. As I told her, I said, "This I'm like, boy, this is kind of like reliving the Death Race 2000 podcast." Oh, you, know, you were the you were the co. You I was the co-pilot. The co-pilot right? I was the navigator. Yeah. <laughs> I was navigating the whole time. That was fun. I did. I had a ball. It was great. Where the hell was I going with this? 
<laughs> Things you didn't like about the movie. Okay, here. Okay, here's the thing, and I, I, I'm going to get this off my chest right now because this is the one little beef I had with the movie. I understand why they do this in movies. What I don't like is how they get there. The part was when the doctor got shot. The problem I had was the captain of the Marines. We're talking about a professional officer is trying to shoot an albatross with a musket on a ship and just blazes right down the middle of the ship and takes the doctor out. And I'm thinking, what a dumbass. And I guess the problem I had with it, it was the captain of the Marine Guard. This is one of the professionals. This is this is one of the, you know, dumb midshipmen. I mean, I could have bought it if it was one of the dumb midshipmen that were trying to do something like that or one of the conscript marines or something but it just bothered me that it was him and it just seemed to be when you saw all this realism and the professionalism and then you saw that and it's like why would you first of all why do you even think you could shoot a flying albatross on a ship with a freaking musket hawkeye and last of the mohicans could have pulled that off with no sweat <laughs> gotcha there here we go and you know what? He said he was God. sorry. <laughs> oh my and I, I had a problem with that. The other part of that I had was was the whole, uh, I have to pull this bullet out with my own hand, so he's not going to let Higgins do it. He's going to do it himself. Okay. It just seemed like it was melodrama that wasn't necessary. Outside of that, I love this movie. Like I said, I've got it on Blu-ray. It's I got it on Blu-ray, got it on you know, regular DVD. Favorite movie. But that was the one thing that just bugged me about it and i'll give you an example mark it was kind of like the things like you know we like saving private ryan right up to the part where they say hey you know what let's charge this mg42 and you know what let's bring the medic with us brilliant yeah it was like that it's one of those things where you got to whack the medic you got to get rid of a character this is the way you do it actually it's not that's not the way you do it you do it another way maybe he steps on a landmine or something like that but that's how i saw that scene and it and it bugged me, but like I said, outside of that, I just thought it was you know a stellar movie. You know, like I said, every movie's going to have a little quirk. That was my two cents. I'll shut up now. Yeah, but you know, when you look at this movie, and I don't know what Jeff and and your thoughts are, I think any problems with this movie are pretty minor. They are. Since you asked, I will share. Okay, I have one problem with this movie. Okay. There is no female in this movie, but there's a female in this movie. Oh, here we go. And that female in this movie is the doctor. <laughs> oh, okay. That sniveling baby. The point where he pulls out, but you promised me we were going to go to the Galapagos. Why aren't we going to go to the Galapagos <laughs> Islands? But you said, Mr. Aubrey, we were going to go. Did you forget your Look, bitch. <laughs> I just got word of where this damn ship is, and my mission is to go and sink this ship. You can take this Galapagos promise and shove it up your ass. Seriously, this is an exchange you're having. But you said, I know you have to go find this ship, but and I know that it, you know the wind's in our favor. But really, can't we just all get along and go go on go on our little expedition? I just wanted him to take out his sword and stab him at that point, okay? Because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to stab the man at that point and said, okay, we can do without a surgeon because I don't need this bullshit. 
I just felt that the the crunchy granola representation that he was was, was out of place because I, I just can't believe that on this military ship that you're going to have somebody actually pursue this role of, well, you know what, maybe we need to go back to England and tell them that we can't do this mission. Well, I mean, was that was that standard operating procedure that, oh, well, wait a minute, we can't beat the enemy, so maybe we need to go and do something else? There were cases where admirals would come back and say, well, you know, I, I had my orders, but you know, in my own discretion, I thought it best not to follow my orders. So the Lord Admiral would say, well, string him up and you know, leave him by the, the river to inspire the other people as they sail out. <laughs> you know, and that's my point, Ken. I'm glad you bring that up because that's my third point of the problem that I had with the movie is there's the point where you know, the coxswain or whatever was uh, – he was not respectful to one of the officers and, and, and actually went out of his way – to basically intimidate him and, you know, shoulder bump him. The doctor is pleading for him to, well, you know what? He just didn't salute him. No, the dude gave him a hard shoulder of complete disrespect, and you can't have that type of crap on a ship in the middle of the ocean. And, you know, Aubrey says, you know, I can't really listen to, you know, the anarchy that you want. And you have to keep order, especially when they're dead in the water. And all he's doing is trying to keep these guys together by feeding them more alcohol and keeping them busy by working because they can only wait for the for the wind. He's like, can't create the wind. I can only harness it. And you've got this guy going, well, you know what? Just just let him go. Don't. And, the, you know, and Aubrey's like. No, I can't because, you know, he was disrespectful and, and went out of his way to cause a problem to one of his officers. You would have anarchy on a ship. So you've got to beat this man in sub, into submission. Or but the doctor the, but the doctor would just rather him go, oh, just, just throw the grog overboard and just send them on their way. Bullshit. Beat the man and have him walk the damn plank, and I bet you don't have anybody do that again. First of all, Hollum uh, was the midshipman, and he was the one that they didn't respect him. He was just kind of a you know weaselly little character. I mean, he meant well. He tried to do his job, but just was not cut out for that particular line of work, and it was pretty obvious. He couldn't make a decision. He just he, There was nothing he could do was right, and everybody saw it. Nobody respected him. No, they felt he was the Jonah. He was the bad luck, and that made a big play in this movie. So that was what did it, and I think that was the whole point was, is that when, gosh, I can't remember the character's name, when he did, when he gave him the, kind of gave him the shoulder and, you know, what that disrespect was, he had been hitting the grog a little hard. And that's why the doctor said, you know, just, why don't you just tip the rum and the grog over the side? And he's like, and you, you want a mutiny? You want to really see a mutiny then? He goes, I won't be able to control anybody. Because right. that was about the only thing that kept the crew under control was their grog and rum ration tipping the grog over these guys would string the captain up for doing that i mean you would have a mutiny on your hands um hell i'd be the leading <laughs> and you resemble that person that would lead absolutely the because you know what the first thing i would have said why is all the rum gone why is all the rum gone <laughs> why is all right. the rum gone speaking hey wait speaking of rum gentlemen what are we drinking is a gentleman, what are you drinking now? Or is a gentleman, what you drinking? Can we vote on this? I really like what you What, what you would drink. make you feel good, Jeff? What you drinking? It doesn't right. sound so formal. But, Captain, since you are the captain, I will defer to what you want. I just want to get a clarification. Is a gentleman, what you drinking? Or is a gentleman, what are you drinking? Flog him.
No rum ration for him. I spent most of my day flying in the air today, but you know what? I'm not that tired that I can't drive <laughs> to your house with my lime shovel. And, uh, and flog you with it, not bury you. Flog <laughs> yeah, you that's with exactly it. it. I'm not going to dig a hole. I'm just going to beat you with it. <laughs> I have one pistol, or I have two pistols, <laughs> one for each of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, gentlemen, whatcha drinking? Last week, I was not able to get to the brewery, and I wish I would have, because this is what I would have picked up for last week. But because I couldn't, I picked it up this week. It's from Hoppin' Frog, and it's the Boris the Crutcher. Cr- I'm sorry, let me try that again. It's Boris the Crusher Oatmeal Stout <laughs> instead of Boris the Blade or <laughs> Boris the Bullet Dodger. This is Boris the Crutcher. You guys are out of Ohio. Anyways, um, it it's Hoppin' Frog. It's a uh, it's an oatmeal stout. I've got to say it it may be one of the best oatmeal stouts. I've had. Now, I don't necessarily care for their logo, all right? Uh, And I'm not a big frog fan. This is where I I really enjoyed this. This is 22 ounce. It's a pound. It's about a pint and uh, and a fourth. It's 9.4 ounce, uh, 9.4% alcohol per volume, okay? Let me tell you, I've had one of these, and, and I'm feeling pretty good. And uh, I've gone to Mexico before, drank their rum all day, and never felt a little bit of a buzz. Read what you want to into that. But anyway, good beer. Very, very tasty. Outstanding. Well, I am drinking one of the Sam Adams Distinct Dales or one of their one-off brews that they've been doing lately. It is the Sam Adams Gauche. It's a Saxon beer. It's actually very... Crisp. It's it's kind of a hybrid between a, a pale ale and a lager. Um, nice if you can find it. You know those one-off kind of brews they do. Their Bach and a couple of others. I recommend it. It was five ninety-nine. It was a pint and six ounces. It's a nice beer. Give it a try. Cool. Very nice. Like it, Mr. Ken. What are you uh, What are you drinking? Or do you still have anything left? Cleaning up the last of my homemade vanilla vodka and caffeine-free Diet Coke. And unfortunately, there's, I think I mentioned earlier, I, when I started pouring it in my big tumbler of a glass, <laughs> it's more vodka than Coke, and I'm feeling it. So, oh well. All right, my turn. I am drinking, Mark. This one's for you, buddy. All right. Um, actually, I texted the wife while I was... Um, right before I was uh, leaving uh, Philadelphia because we had to go from Boston to Philly to Indy. And she, I said, well, I got to stop and pick up uh, some beer for the podcast. And she says, well, I'm going to the store. What can I get you, honey? Give me the 12-pack of the uh, seasonal Dundees. So I am, I'm drinking some Dundees right now. This is a, uh, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a great little craft beer. They have their seasonal one. They have a stout, and it's pretty good. A little mild compared to some of the others, but it, it's still a, a, a solid stout. I am also drinking a, not at the same time with the stout, of course, but I've got all of them here, a <laughs> Pale Bach Lager. This one is really good. It is, according to the uh, description, big and malty, and that is no kidding. Uh, they also have a Pilsner and a Pale Ale, and the, uh, the Pilsner is very good. I, I highly recommend the Pilsner. This is their seasonal. I have never had their pale Bach lager before, and it is excellent. 
Oh, and I'm also uh, I'm also chasing it down with a little of uh, Elijah Craig from your well, neck of the woods, Mark. There you go. Okay, so gentlemen, we have uh, discussed what we have been imbibing with tonight, and I recommend for our listeners that if you have not had any of these, uh, I highly recommend that you go out and try them. Like I said, the Dundee's is very good this year. All right, uh, what do you think, gentlemen? Clips? Got some clips? I just love this clip, so I'm just going to go ahead and play it. I would choose the right-hand weevil. It has significant advantage in both length and breadth. There, I have you. You're completely dished. Do you not know that in the service, one must always choose the lesser of two weevils? <laughs> I love that. No. They all bust out laughing, yeah. and they're just and they're just. I mean, there's like that belly laugh. They're just they're just having a good time. I like this one here too because this is this is kind of early on. This is a good example of I think the development of Aubrey's character, and it wasn't from him. It was from the sailing master. In all my years, I've never seen the like. It had to be more than a hundred sea miles, and he brings us up on his tail. That seamanship, Mr. Pullings. My God, that seamanship. And I thought that was just a neat little scene. I just, I, I always liked that particular scene. It was, um, it really kind of told you that you've got this old seasoned sailing master who just has nothing but other respect for Aubrey, who's, you know, God, probably what, 20, 25 years younger than him? Probably. All right. I like this one. Uh, Mark, you'll like this one, too. See, to the ship's captain, I'd say there's little I detest more than an informer. Now you're talking like an Irishman. Well, I am an Irishman. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I'm getting my lime shovel. I'm getting my keys. I'm paying you a visit. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> as soon as I can find my lime shovel, damn it. Yeah. All right. Well, um, if you can't, Steve has one in his garage. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Why bring mine when I can use his? <laughs> yeah, just going to beat me with my own lime shovel. All right. I like this one, too, because this this I thought was a pretty interesting uh, exchange. This was because you got to remember, Stephen is a science guy. It's all about the science. He doesn't really believe in anything else but science. This is a scene after uh, Holland. Holland was having basically a panic attack after the one dude had gotten whipped. So, you know, he had to basically kind of walk. When I refer to, he had to walk the gauntlet of the Siemens quarters to get to his own. And when he came down, everybody, every, nobody said a word. But as he came by, everybody stood up and would just gave him a salute. And they just would stare at him as they went by. And you could see, I mean, this guy's like a nervous little nilly anyway. So he was a little freaked out about it. So he had this little panic attack. They bring the doctor. The doctor's like, there's nothing wrong with him. It's just nerves. He just, he's afraid. He thinks he's cursed. And Aubrey just kind of looks at the crew and kind of says under his breath, crews can take a lot, but they can't abide by a Jonah. There's nothing physically wrong with him. He thinks he's been cursed. Sailors can abide a great deal, but not a Jonah. My God, he believe it too. Not everything is in your book, Stephen. And that, to me, was a very telling point. Not everything is in your books. Well, and they point out one of the reasons the crew so admire Captain Jack is, if you notice, they make reference a couple times, Lucky Jack. Lucky Jack, yep. He's a lucky talisman. He's one of those captains who is lucky. That is a big part of the life of even modern sailors. Ships that start off cursed are always cursed. People who are cursed with bad luck, they just got bad luck and you don't want to be around Moving on to clips, I like this one here. This is one that we can all appreciate. 
The only things that keep this little wooden world together are hard work, discipline. Jack, the man failed to salute. For God's sake, Stephen, there's hierarchies even in nature, as you've often said yourself. There is no disdain in nature. There is no humiliation. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I'll grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. Order must be maintained. It's, it's what I was saying earlier. I mean, this was an age. Discipline was swift and certain and cruel and harsh, but everybody knew it was coming. I mean, that's the way their right. lives were run. Once military discipline goes, you have a mob. All right, back to clips. I got a, I, I got a couple more that I want to play, and these are, these are probably going to really be the best ones that uh, uh, Jeff will like, so I'm going to play this one. Jack? Have you forgotten your promise? Subject to the requirements of the service. I could not know conscience delayed for the sake of an iguana or a giant peccary. Fascinating, no doubt. But of no immediate application. Have you forgot your promise to me? You know, the uh, bromance between those two, all right, it was just it was just sickening. All okay. right, that's all I can say. Okay, here we go. And this one is for you, Jeff. This is this is where Aubrey just gets angry. I mean, he gets down and dirty and just gets angry. I shall say nothing of the corruption of power you or its corruption. You forget yourself, Doctor. No, Jack, no. You've forgotten yourself. You see, for my part, I look upon a promise as binding. Promise was it never occurred to me. I command a kingship. You not a private We do not have time for your damned hobbies, sir. You know, at one point I thought, is this a private limousine for you? He didn't say when he was going to get you to the Galapagos Islands. He just said he would get you there. He didn't say time frame. He didn't say when. Okay, guys, what do you think? Man Cave Movie Review. I am going to defer this one first to my good and dear friend, Mr. Roney. What do you think? I'm going to give it an eight. It's solid. It's good. Sadly, it didn't do dramatically in the box office, but I liked it. It delivers. If it comes on TV and I see it, I stop and watch it. So I give it an eight. Very good. Very good. Like it. All right. Jonah? Muncie? <laughs> the DVD is set up very well on this, okay, because you can hit the next chapter button and it will skip all of the bullshit doctor moments, okay? <laughs> and when I do that, this sh- this show is... It, it's gorgeous. It's well uh, well designed. You know the cinematography, which we have touched on, is spectacular. I love the score in this movie too, and I think it's paired very well with the scenes. I can't think of a guy on here except for the Doctor that um, that I would replace with anybody else. And by the way, Heath Ledger was supposed to be in that role, or could have been in that role as the Doctor. Now I agree that the the guy they had for this it should have been should have been the actor. I really enjoy him. You know, for an adaptation on a book, I think is really well done. I wish more people would have caught it. Ken pointed out that it didn't do very well in the box office, but these movies don't. Um, they're historical. It's it's ship dominated. But I think that the effort that they went through to put this on the screen, I think the story, all the little extras that they have to to fill the uh, the movie itself with trying to show what life is like and, and show the events that will, you know, and, and expose you to all the trials and tribulations a ship and its crew can go through, I think are just very well done. Um, th- and, and and with that, uh, I, I know Ken gave it an eight, and I am going to, uh, e- even with all the Doctor moments, I, I think it's a great movie. Um, and I'm going to also, I'm going to give it an 8.25. Awesome. like it. Very nice. Mr. Albatross, what do you think? I just have to echo the sentiments of the other gentleman. It's it's a 
it's a wonderful slice of uh, uh, period um, you don't see. There are not many Napoleonic movies. I think we've all seen the, the vast bulk of them and enjoy all of those that are done. Uh, this movie hits all the buttons for a great period movie and also a very good chase movie, which is what it is. Um, I do like the actors. I, I think that my favorite actor in the movie beyond Russell Crowe is the ship. It gives you the feel of what it was like in 18th century, the British Navy in the 18th century. I do want to note, and Jeff mentioned it, the music is superb. They introduce the Baroque period of the music, which is very important in the books, into the into the movie. The soundtrack is incredible. Yo-Yo Ma plays on the soundtrack, um, brilliant cellist. And if you like the Baroque period, they inject that into the movie very well. And throughout the movie, I think that the music is some of the best you will find in in a soundtrack and for a movie. All in all, great movie. If you have not seen it, please do go see it. It, it only did about $50 million more than what it cost in the box office. However, Russell Crowe does want to make a sequel, and... If rumors are true, both 20th Century Fox and Universal Studios are talking about picking it back up in 2014 to make a second movie. I'd give it an eight and a quarter. You know, I found it at uh, Half Price Books for um, five bucks. And, Mark, uh, thank you for that synopsis. And I hate following up behind you because, you know what, I just sound like a dunce. You do such a good job of uh, of a movie. I just, I, I do. I'm not, mm. Can we call you Dunce and Commander? <laughs> 9.4% alcohol. <laughs> is, is, is that your defense, Counselor? That's your defense. <laughs> That's your defense, and you're sticking to it. The defense rested case. <laughs> no, I no. Mark does a fantastic job of uh, pretty much following up a movie. I think I'm going to have to do him last from now on because I, I because this, how do I follow up with that? I'm giving it. I'm going to give it an 8.25 too. I've got a few issues with the movie. Uh, nothing that detracts from it. It is a must-see movie. All right, folks, that's it for Man Cave Movie Reviews, episode 22. I am your host, Steve Michaels, signing off. But before I sign off, I do want to encourage you to visit our website at www.mancavemoviereview.com. You can also find us on iTunes, and you can see us there at Man Cave, all one word, movie review. You can also download us there and leave comments there and tell us how Jeff is the instrumental part of the show. 9.4% alcohol. All right, that's it. So this is me, your host, Steve Michael, signing off with my good and dear friend, Jeff. No one likes Jonah Muncy. You know, Steve, I never met a dead man that bought me a drink. And you never met a live one that bought you one either. And also saying farewell and adieu is our other good and dear friend, Mark. Hey, y'all, watch while I try to shoot this albatross with my musket slower. Jeff, you never take me to the Galapagos. You never let me go see cormorants or, or phasmids. Well, why don't you ever take me to the Galapagos? That's all I've ever asked, Jeff, is for you to take me to the Galapagos. And saying farewell, adieu, and auf Wiedersehen is our other good and dear friend, Ken. You shot me, Roni. All I can say is, like the flightless cormorant of the Galapagos... This podcast will still be here when you come back. Nice. Outstanding. Very well done. Thank you. So this is it. Your host, Steve Michael, signing off. Ciao.
And by the way, meet White Tip Shark, okay? That's all I have to say. <laughs> Get off the f***ing boat, all right? And tell it to the teeth, okay? You f***ing fine. You know what? <laughs> let me let me drop you off an island, all right, with a little knife, and we'll play Survivor, the movie or the TV show, and I'll be back in a few weeks to pick you up. All comments in the last 30 seconds provided by Jeff <laughs> were provided by an oatmeal stout from Ohio. Oatmeal stout, 9% alcohol by nine, volume with nine, an ugly-ass frog on the bottle. 9.4%. <laughs>